This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, celebrating Reunion Weekend, where alumni have gathered to reconnect and learn. This is a special presentation of Women at Work. Here's your host, Laura Zero. Welcome to Women at Work and this special Reunion Radio edition of our show. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, celebrating Wharton's Alumni Reunion Weekend here at Business Radio. On today's show, you're going to meet two of our alumni who not only managed to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace, they've done so in ways they never would have expected on the day they graduated from Wharton, and we're going to hear their stories. My first guest is Susan Gantz. She started her career, like many of our alumni, on Wall Street. When her father died unexpectedly, her mom asked her to put those astute business skills to use and take a look at the business. What was supposed to be a temporary involvement has lasted for uh, around 30 years or so. Um, Susie's the longstanding and highly innovative CEO of Lion Brothers, the leading designer and manufacturer of apparel identity systems. Susie serves on a number of corporate, governmental, and academic and not-for-profit boards, a clear sign of, A, all that she has to offer and her enormous generosity of spirit. Um, These boards include the corporate boards of PRS Guitar, Barcoding Incorporated, Thames Technology, and Credly, a digital credentials company. And along with the Board of Visitors at Townsend University, Board of Directors of Sustainable Health Enterprise, based in Rwanda, of all places, and the John Hopkins Tech Transfer and Innovation Advisory Board that I'm guessing is a special passion. Um, she received her MBA in finance and multinational management from the Wharton, from Wharton, following her BA in economics from the University of Florida. And while all of that is clearly lots of reasons to want to learn from Susie, it's her curiosity, her generosity of spirit, and her wisdom that makes me love her so. Susie, Welcome to Women at Work. Thanks, Laura. It's so great to be back on campus. And it's so filled with energy and joy today. It's just amazing. And the faces, all ages, all stages, everyone looks beautiful. I know. It's really incredible. See, one of the things I was thinking about this morning was, and I don't know if you remember this, it was when we were just starting Women at Work, and I reached out to you to kind of get anchored and oriented and to, to help you like, give me some perspective on what matters, what should we be talking about. And I remember so vividly the way that you talked about the importance of each other, of community, of networks, and how we make an arena where we help each other be successful. I think it was also the first time I heard Madeleine Albright's quote, there's a special place in hell for women who don't support each other. <laughs> So I wanted to ask you about this and also say now that you're in such a leadership role, where do you find mentorship and support? Oh, goodness. Great question. Mentorship comes from every avenue of the earth. You know, <laughs> if you can believe it, it comes everywhere. And it comes through, um, mentorship comes through, for me, in this spirit of generosity that others share. It, it's the ultimate gift in many ways. Did you go through the process of seeking mentors when you started your career? Or or how did you move into seeing mentors wherever they may emerge? Sure. It, it, it came from this notion of just seeking advice, seeking sage wisdom. You know, you see, you, you gain skills along the way. But I think it's this, this, this idea of where, how can we find different approaches? How do we find different perspectives? Because, you know, in, in, expanding our horizons, we gain, you know, this outside in view that then becomes part of who we are. I love the way that you talk about it, because for two reasons. One is, it sounds very similar to how we approach being creative, and how we approach innovation, which is where do we learn? Where do we find ideas? How do we put them to use? But it's also freed from what I think a lot of people describe as like a contractual um, tit for tat relationship. Like, hello, Ms. Gantz, I am Laura Zara. Would you be my mentor? Right. And that would, that would sort of put something in, the, in, this, in this box of tactical mentorship. Yes, that's the word I'm looking for. That's perfect. <laughs> right? And, and is mentorship this tactic of you ask, I tell? Or is it this relationship that is more organic in nature that expands, you know, as we expand and it contracts in terms of time, but it never goes away if, if if, like any good relationship as it evolves. Do you have young people and people within your own company that are coming to you for that kind of tactical mentorship? They come for tactical mentorship. And my goal is to be able to provide expansive mentorship. So they may come thinking, what do you think about X? 
and the, and the question isn't that you know much of the time it's not about that specific question it's trying to get to what's the bigger question they're trying to see, you know what's what are they trying to understand so it's less about you know how do i and more about what approach do i and this this notion of anticipatory guidance these these this um, life is a journey, and within that, what is it? What is it that I need to know as we, um, you know, move along this journey, and huh. and and so it becomes less tactical in nature and more of a like a river, which is as you move as you move along, what is it that you need to know at what stage? So anticipatory guidance becomes a big um, element of that which we can uh, gain and give. It's such a phenomenal concept and phrase. Um, and the first time I heard you say it, I remember thinking, I waited my whole life for that. How did you become aware of that as a concept and a thing to aim towards as a gift you give to other people? I think part of it was actually being a part of an organization, if I can tell you, called Committee of 200, which is eight gals that meet regularly. And and the the gals were younger than myself and older than myself and so and they were not not just and, and all had run companies or were running companies and the questions that were asked and the the expression of what was important and what did it mean you know meant that you know it 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 required thinking gosh if i if i could listen hear understand and also share it means that along these pathways everyone would be a little bit better prepared for life's transitions. but And so part of it came from almost like a village of women at different stages of career all helping each other. That's right. A safe village. Talk so, about how it was made safe. Sure. That's Well, first of all, in this, in this group of eight, there are some ground rules about confidentiality. Okay. So information may be expressed, but it's shared within the eight. And the second is that it really is a village, so that within that we have each other's backs. And and those are two, I think, two of the ground rules of being able to really get to the heart of matters, having safe spaces to be able to express questions beyond just the tactical. And the other is to be able to provide that guidance so that as the time as as the time, you know, continues that oh, that nugget, that piece of wise, you know, that sage advice is something that that you know stays with me. I want to back up for a second to just some of the practical stuff. What? How did you find out about the committee of two hundred? What was it? How is it organized? Does it still exist? Sure, it still exists. It's for um, leading entrepreneurs and corporate executives. However, there are other, and it's a wonderful organization. So for those that are coming up and and you know considering should should I be part of something that can provide me the opportunity to learn from others, this is one organization that does that. Although there are many. You know, as Cheryl Sandberg had started her Lean In Circles, and Morton starts its groups of women, these are all examples of places where people, women can come to share. And and again, that safe space of understanding that we often lead lead integrated lives. Talk, Talk to me about that. Sure. So the integration of life is we have our personal lives, we have our professional lives, and much of what we're juggling is both of them. It's not that it's not that we compartmentalize my career life from my my three kids that I'm trying to raise and trying to be home by X to satisfy their requirements. Um, it, it, we lead integrated lives, and the fluidity of understanding that you know what we bring to what we bring to the the career and our our our. our career journey is so influenced by our home and how we think and vice versa completely so as a mom of three in that journey you know one comes you know you face like the frightening and joyous experience of becoming a mom how did you see it change you as a business as a creative business leader as a thinker as a member of a professional community because I know for me there are very clear ways that I see that I'm different as a result of parenting Sure. Pa- parenting has changed the way I think completely. As a parent, I, you know, each, of, each child ha- learns differently. And with each type of learning style and expression, it's adjusting that style to, be, to, to make them the most successful human being they can be. And so in looking at whether it's an issue of learning or whether it's an issue of connecting or how, they, how to best maximize their talents and, and, and you know, motivate them so that they, are, they, they have a growth mindset, um, I think the same approach comes to comes to the workplace. So for us, you know, I was looking at our management team. We have uh, 
in our leadership team, there there are people from China, from uh, Taiwan, from Scotland, from the UK. In this leadership team, women, men, all you know this this uh, beautiful, uh, rich um, amalgam of of cultures, and it's it's no different than children. Which is <laughs> how how do you find meaningfulness in each of their expressions? Which is what do and and each of them communicate in a different way. And it's, it's funny. You reminded me of something I thought about in terms of teachers, where it struck me that somehow the teacher, a teacher, every teacher, I think, finds a way to love each kid in that room, to see the promise in each kid in that room, to see what makes them special, to have compassion for them. Otherwise, how do they teach them? And it's um, and I've admired it and I'm trying to learn from it. And it feels similar to, I think, what you're talking about with parenting, that if we think about whether it's our kids, the kids, if we're teaching, but more, more specific to the topics today, that as managers, to see what's special and wonderful in each person and hold that up and aim towards that, it seems like they perform better and the whole dynamic is richer. I think you've captured it beautifully. And there's the essence, which is in today's environment, we talk about words like diversity and inclusivity and these things, and it begins with empathy. You know, to bring in different cultures without having a sense of empathy for cultural differences or or a sense of taking the time to understand a person's motivations. You know, what right. is it that, what motivates them is is we're, we're being um, we're, we're being a little bit um, closed minded with regard to the opportunity and what it could be. So, Susie, you walked into a family run company and you were relatively young at the time. How old were you when you came in full time? I was 28. And were you a parent yet? I was not a parent. I was single, uh, had not a care in the world, and came into this manufacturing company where there was, there was uh, management in place but having some real challenges. And so when you came in, I'm going to guess um, that the company was not quite as diverse and creative as it is today. Is that fair to say, or am I selling it short? Oh, no, I think, I think that ca- <laughs> that's very accurate. Um, you know, today within our industry, I'm so pleased that our, our, our company is really con- considered really one of the innovators, one of the top innovators in what we do. And that has absolutely come from diversity of perspectives. So t- tell me, because this is, A, it's the one of the many wonderful stories that comes with your company, but it's also, I think, a roadmap as we are trying so hard collectively to make a difference in this regard. How did you move towards that kind of inclusive thinking, diverse culture, and bring creative practices into the community in a way that has propelled you to be such a leader in the field? It it took a long time (laughs) to say, but I look at the progress. It's interesting. When I look at the progress of 30 years, it's really the past seven years, the past five years, the past three years that has brought about this, this, this change and, and with its speed. Um, we brought in an entire new generation. One is because we had to, and then as we brought in young thinking and integrated thinking, we found that everyone had a place around the table that young thinking needed experience and wisdom and wise needed energy and new ways of, of, of thinking about things and doing things. And so with this is this amalgam of talent, which is just operating at a, at a rapid speed. So um, I think of you setting the table for groups of people to come together in all different parts of your life, um, but particularly at work, as you're bringing in these kind of young, interesting, diverse people with different ways of thinking, and you have a trusted team that's been with you who you also love. I mean, I've heard you talk about your team before with great respect and affection. Um, In the nitty-gritty, how do you get them to hear each other? How do you get through those first kind of awkward meetings and the, the understandable interpersonal dynamics where people don't yet understand each other? So we have eight around the table, and all of us speak English, but sometimes we don't speak the same language. So with that, you know, we be... <laughs> Can I borrow that? It's, it's beautiful. <laughs> and, and we've been in this together long enough to, to back up, to, to know that if we're off kilter, if, there, if there's something, uh, there's a sense of respect to be able to back up just a moment to say, what did you mean by that? 
that clarifying statement that gives somebody a space to be able to explain themselves. Because what we understand is language, part of language is really understanding the context of the expression, not just the word itself. And so with that, a, a, a Scot may, some, may say something that means very <laughs> something very different than an American. And so we, we take a step just to the side to say, can you please clarify, and what do you mean by that? And this isn't taking anything away from anyone. Ra- rather, it's giving space to understand. Uh, by the way, this is a special reunion radio edition of Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I couldn't be more excited to be talking with Susie Gantz, the CEO of Lion Brothers and a proud Wharton alumna. Um, Susie, part of what's so touching in the way that you're describing this and also compelling to me is the, that what's embedded in it is how you learn to listen. You were talking before about um, really zeroing in and hearing what is it that somebody needs guidance on, like when you were talking about mentorship that, and that difference of is it tactical, is it anticipatory guidance. But at the heart of that is not what you're saying. It's how you learned to listen to hear what people need. And it sounds like in these group dynamics where you're trying to help people speak the same language while they're speaking English and really understand each other, that um, your ability to know when to ask that question comes with how you're listening. How did you become such a good listener? Well, I'll flip it back to you, Laura. <laughs> I think, you know, as, as we, we know one another, um, the human centricity of being able to design and, and have inclusivity by design mm-hmm. is, is central here, which is, you know, experience of probably getting it wrong. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when they say, mo- you, know, um, you know, the mother of invention here, it's, it's amazing how human centricity can begin with, you know, just getting something wrong. Or making sure that a voice, you know, and, and ensuring that as a result of that getting it wrong, let's see what gets what 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 can bring it right. So that brings me to um, one of those things I love to talk about is how do we perceive the getting it wrong? What words do we use to describe it? On a previous show, we called you know we have a new F word and it's failure. <laughs> we make mistakes, we get things wrong, but failure assigns it a different kind of absoluteness. Um, that just you can't recover from. So talk to me about how getting it wrong at different stages of your career and how you you make sense of it and now how you help others cope with that emotionally. Sure. In the in the design world, they call it prototyping. So interesting, <laughs> right? right? And so this whole, yeah, at art school we called it trying, <laughs> right? And, and you know, and we take a personal view of I'm a failure versus. I'm, I'm, I'm not meeting, I'm, I'm failing or I'm not meeting what I hope to meet, you know, and, and the, the whole sense of emotion attached to that sense of failure is an interesting thing when, when all we are is really just learning. Right. And I, and I think, um, I like to think of it as the difference between, and tell me if this feels like right and useful. Um, it's the difference between I'm failing or my, this work was not successful. Oh, it's not me. It's the thing I made. It's absolutely the thing I made and giving yourself the freedom to say, it's the thing I made, not me. Therefore, <laughs> let me try a different approach. And so, and as we look at these, this, this, you know, notion of approaches and navigation, you know, it's less about getting the exact thing right than figuring out the approach. And um, it's, as you're saying this, I'm thinking about all the different arenas in which um, this comes to light, you know, and also that integration your whole life. There's, you know, how you've raised three kids to go be brave and creative and try and do things that matter, how you've developed this company to be so successful and innovative. Um, And as a parent and as a designer and an innovator, you know, it's um, I'm always curious about how we strike the right balance of, of, you know, making the room to try to be creative, to iterate, to um, learn by having it not work and doing it again, and how to also pace that and structure that so that the bigger, that the the non-negotiable goals are met, particularly when you're talking about a corporate setting. Which is challenging. As an entrepreneur, there's a lot more space to be able to try and fail and, proto- and, and try again in a different method. In a corporate setting, that sense of judgment is, is, uh, you know, has, takes on its own life. The, the, I think th- this is one of the, 
top challenges with regard to corporate America is how do we create the space not just for inclusivity and diversity, but how do we create the space for people to try and, and in particular, giving those we want to include risk exposure, how do we give them the ability to try and uh, the, uh, exposure to something where they may not be comfortable with the notion of risk? A therapist use the exposure <laughs> to make people comfortable within an uncomfortable setting. And I think how, uh, about how do we provide this time space for, for people to do that? And it's baby steps. It's not, you know, hey, let's, let's you know, give them the keys to the, to the whatever. But, so is that part of putting people in... Um, new situations, situations where they're not wholly confident, but where you see that there's their ca- the capacity to grow into it. Absolutely. And, and again, baby steps, you know, uh, places where they have the opportunity to succeed and fail, but it won't be fatal to their careers. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that um, I was talking with Patty McCord from Netflix about this and Kim Scott about it is this notion of radical honesty or radical candor. And um, it hearkened me back to my art school days of what it's like to participate in a critique where you put all your work on the wall and everybody does it. And it's almost like you're naked, but it's not you. It's your work. And everybody in the room gives you criticism on it. And and you listen hungrily once you get used to that experience because you want to learn and make it better. But it's hard. We did that in art school with, you know, a um, the, the whole social construct of its school, their teachers, their grades. Um, how do you look at that kind of honest, critical discourse in an environment where you still want people to be kind? I think the construct that you're talking about, first of all, has, has it is within a construct. So within the larger framework of organizations and society, it's challenging. Because again, you have cultural differences. You know, in our in our China operations, this whole this whole notion of saving face becomes something critical. So, how do you not just can you give radical honesty, but how do you give radical honesty? Right. right? So it's interesting because it also then has a cross cultural dimension that you need to consider if you're going to try and instill an innovative spirit there. Absolutely. Or rather, leverage the innovative spirit that's there, but we may not know how to speak to. Right. So if there if there is a promotion of culture within that, whether it be an art school, whether it be an organization of radical honesty, again, you're creating four walls where it's safe to be radically honest. Like in the village of the Committee of 200. Exactly. So when you talked about safety there, you know, the first thing you said, it's absolutely confidential. So because um, I think it's worth noting that that kind of confidentiality doesn't just mean you're not spilling each other's business secrets. Because you're talking about all the parts of you, and it's a safe place to talk about the things that you're afraid of, ashamed of, struggling with. The vulnerability of being human. Right? And, and in essence, you know, can't we all become better through uh, being able to express our vulnerabilities so that someone else can have a different perspective about our vulnerabilities? Mm-hmm. But um, the irony is it takes a certain confidence in order to be able to be ready to open yourself up like that. It does, and and it takes it takes the confidence in institutional structures to be able to do that in their own way, and therein lies the challenge. Which is, you know, again, we're seeing a lot of, uh, we're seeing change within, as an example, something as simple as the Me Too movement. You know, in our, in our industry, we work with many of the apparel, athletic apparel companies that are going through cultural challenges because of. Uh, you know what they see as a, as a, you know, the old boys' culture, if mm-hmm. you will. And many industries, you know, we're, we're not specific, but many of the industries are like this, which is how do we change? So instead of making things like a football team, it's more like an orchestra. And so, and with that, every instrument has a, 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 a sound, a voice, a place within the ultimate sound of the piece. So, as a business leader, and I know it, um, a deeply conscientious one that's thought about supporting and advancing women throughout your whole life and career. Um, how did you take the Me Too movement and talk about it within your own organization? Because everybody's talking about it. And I'm curious to see when you want to make room for dialogue that's productive, how did you handle that as a leader? So, um, well, and, it, and it's educating y'all, right? Remember this cultural diversity of, of um, you know, within our, even our leadership team has meant both formal and informal dialogues and informal and formal messages. So I'll 
you know, we have uh, training, we have dialogues, but we also do things informally where we'll have stand-ups. And each, each voice in those stand-ups become important. So it's not just the person who's leading it or the command and control. It's that each voice truly is important. And it also sounds like you're looking at all the different places where voices are shared to make those values evident. Not unlike parenting. <laughs> That's right. Each touch point becomes important, whether it's visible or invisible. I mean, you can have all the visible programs you want, but again, it may be the undercurrents that are essentially, you know, creating an environment for, um, you know, that aligns with uh, Me Too. So I also know that you are a devoted lifelong learner. With the little bit of time we have left, what are the next places you're looking to learn and grow? You know, so I'm an empty nester as of this year. Congratulations! Is, is congratulations in order? Or is it a little bittersweet? Oh, it's <laughs> it's it's been first year, and and it's both. It's it's you know I love the pace of 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 uh, kids, and also in and I'm enjoying this next stage of you know what's next. And I think learning for me comes in all areas. Again, it's it's almost a little bit like balanced curiosity. So. Um, in terms of day-to-day, I have a wonderful team that's executing beautifully, and so it allows me the opportunity to be able to focus on strategic innovation. And again, strategic innovation comes in, you know, it's an example in all spaces and places. So is it, you know, merging our physical and digital worlds? Is it, you know, how are we going to make an impact in Baltimore where I live? Is it looking at how we create economic systems that work for the future? So I, I, I think, and, and then the personal sense of, I think it moves from, this balance of mind heart i hope that it moves a little bit towards a little bit to uh the heart side i gotta tell you my heart is full as always because i got to spend some time with you Susie. thank you so much for joining us on women at work thanks for having laura it's really been a treat celebrating wharton's reunion weekend where past alumni have gathered to reconnect and learn this is a special presentation of women at work on business radio sirius xm 111 here again is laura zero Welcome back to this special reunion radio edition of Women at Work. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and my guest this half hour is Melissa Eisenstadt, President of the Board of Trustees of the New York Youth Symphony. Our phones are open. If you'd like to join the conversation, certainly give us a call. That's 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. But before we begin our conversation, I want to give you a proper introduction of Melissa and where she comes from. She's been a trustee of New York Youth Symphony since 2010 and board president since 2012. And while she's an accomplished musician, her professional life actually started on Wall Street. She worked at CIBC World Markets, where she was managing director in equity research, leading the firm's software industry research team. She was ranked among the top three stock pickers from 1997 to 99 in Wall Street Journal's All-Star Analyst Survey. And prior to all that, she was at Pillar Corporation, which followed her time at Apple Computer, where she worked first in international marketing and then in U.S. business development. This is all not surprising given her history here at Penn. She earned her MBA, MA at Wharton's Lauder Institute and her BA from the College of Art and Sciences. But interestingly, she's also a lifelong cellist and I think a newborn pianist. Um, And music has served as a creative outlet during her career in tech and finance and clearly inspires and informs her current work in music education, which we're going to learn more about. So, Melissa, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you for having me. So we get to we often get to talk to our alumni about Wall Street, but we don't often get to talk to our alumni about things like the New York Youth Symphony. So tell me, what is it and how did you get involved? So the New York Youth Symphony is an organization in New York, in New York City uh, that educates musically kids 12 to 22, young musicians, in orchestra, which it began with, but also jazz, chamber music, composition, and conducting. It's been around since 1963. Um, and the top ensembles play at Carnegie Hall, Wild Recital Hall, Jazz at Lincoln Center, and other major venues around around the city. They also do outreach to um, underprivileged communities and work very closely with them. So it's a uh, it's an organization whose mission is to inspire young people to use music to uh, learn life lessons. But it also sounds like it's operating almost like a conservatory in in the sophistication of the kind of musical endeavors. The 
the musical endeavors are sophisticated, but we're not looking for the next Yo-Yo Ma or Joshua Bell or Yasha Heifetz. We're really looking to inspire young people who have talent and passion for music to become lifelong musical citizens, but really use the the lessons that you learn in music, which is mastering a skill on an instrument and then mm-hmm. playing with other people and then performing, all of which is very good whether you're on Wall Street in an operating room in arguing a, a, a law case um, or on stage performing Carnegie Hall. I couldn't agree more. I have a background in the arts as well. My art school education has shaped everything I do every day. Right. Um, so, And so for this organization, mm-hmm. um, it's interesting to see that the goal isn't that they go on for musical careers. Do some, though? Absolutely. About, I don't know if it's 10%, maybe 15% do go on to musical careers. And... Uh, they will go to conservatory. They'll go to the, um, the Curtis Institute. They'll go to Juilliard. They'll go to Oberlin to a Manhattan lot of school of Manhattan music, School of Music, all yeah. of these great places. Um, but many of them will go on to great universities. Uh, with many of them get into Ivy League schools and great schools around the country. And some of them will minor in music, which I almost wish I had done at Penn, but, but no one told me to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but they'll go on to minor music. Which you they'll... can do if you go to Penn, by You the can. Way. And I wish someone I, – I knew Did I was not Did you not gonna... realize that the opportunity was there? I just didn't put it together. I mean, my father wanted me to become a cellist. My father wanted me to go to conservatory. And, and so you had I that support at home. Oh, I definitely had the support at home. And I'd gone to the Aspen Music Festival. And at the end of that, at the end of my third summer there, I realized I was not going to be a professional musician. It just – I didn't have – I didn't have the discipline to to practice six hours a day. It, that alone. is something that I don't think a lot of people understand. Right. Is it's, the intense um, discipline and also the physical discipline right. that's necessary right. in in sophisticated musical development. It's the mental and the physical because you're you're you you're a you're a finger athlete, if you will. Right. You it, really are. I mean, it's an athletic. Working endeavor. those muscles is a big part Absolutely. of it, and connecting your brain to them is the other half. Exactly. And I could practice two hours a day, three hours a day, maybe on a good day. I couldn't practice six, and it's certainly quality as well as well as quantity. But when you're a teenager. That uh, the quantity of practicing is really important. I didn't have that. But I always knew that music would be a part of my life. So, And then what connected me to New York Youth Symphony is that my senior year of high school, I was co-principal cellist of the orchestra. And that was really exciting. It and, must have been. That's quite an honor. Yeah. I, well, it was, it was competitive. It was an audition. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I played in the Youth Symphony. And then I didn't really stay connected to it for a long time. And uh, through a connection, I got back involved and became a trustee. And uh, within a couple of years, they asked me to be board president. So it's been it's been fun to come full circle. I can. Uh, it must be. And, yeah. and thrilling and a source of pride. I want to so. dive into something that mm-hmm. you mentioned a moment ago and talking about, you know, that difference between it's um, impressive enough to think of a high school student being willing to practice for two to three hours a day <laughs> and that leap to that intensive focus of six to eight hours of practice a day every single day. And that speaks one of the ways I make sense of that is that it's not just discipline, but it's also drive. How essential is this to you? And that those students, and I've seen them in art, in music, in theater, dance, um, it's like they can't live without doing it. The drive is almost all-consuming. Right. Um, And, well, if you're talking about becoming the next Yo-Yo Ma, you could see where not having that drive might be a problem. But on the other hand, there's a gift in it because there were other parts of you that you wanted to develop. You did not follow your father's advice and (laughs) focus on the cello. You came to Wharton. (laughs) And then to Wharton. So talk to me about what motivated you to go into business and the parts of that that you're still passionate about. Well, when I got out of when I got out of college, I I knew I want I wanted to go to work. I didn't want to go to graduate school so quickly. And the tech industry was was thriving. It was the early eighties or eighty four. Apple Computer was sort of this newly launched, exciting company. And I went there, and I spoke several languages. So I went into international marketing. That was my first job out of college. And um, within a couple of years, I I traveled all over the world. It was really interesting, but I realized there were so many aspects of the business that I didn't understand because I didn't have a business background in accounting and finance. I thought I'd love to go back to school and learn more about that, and that's how I got drawn back to um, going from a, a, a liberal arts undergrad to a business degree at, at Wharton. And I also combined that with a master's in international studies through the Lauder Institute. Okay, I have to ask, how did you learn to speak all these languages? 
So Spanish, we spoke a bit growing up um, because we had someone who lived with us who spoke Spanish. Um, when I got to Penn, I wanted to learn another language, and I chose French and in, in a very intense way, and I learned that. And then I thought, well, I'd like to learn a different language. And I looked at several languages, and Russian just kind of struck me. There was also a great undergraduate history course for anyone listening who was here as an undergrad in the 80s. Um, Rezimovsky had this great Russian history course. It was a huge, huge course, but um, it was – it just the history fascinated me. So I ended up learning Russian. It's um, incredible. You yeah. know, um, I've heard rumors that – or not rumors, but theories that musicians have an, um, a capacity for language. And I also know that in um, classical music programs, especially for vocalists, learning other languages and um, musicologists and um, conductors, that learning other languages can be actually necessary. Yes. Well, if you're singing, I, you, <laughs> I've talked to singers about the fact that they need to, they need to pronounce. They need to, to learn to at least elocute correctly when they speak or when they sing, and conductors who conduct all over the world. Um, usually English is sort of the, the lingua franca for, con, for conducting, but certainly some composers will write down you know, notes and notes about mm -hmm. what they want, and it's, it certainly helps to speak another language. And, and understand just, music history. Music history, and just to connect with people, too. I think okay. that's really important. So now let's connect the dots between um, how you got involved as a trustee before even becoming president of the Board right. of Trustees. Um, talk to me about your kind of volunteer work and how you selected it and mm -hmm. moved through that process. Well, when I when I left Wall Street, I, I never had any time to do any kind of volunteer work when I was on Wall Street. And I was asked to join a, a couple of different boards or consider them. And I just, I just never had time. I never had time to, to breathe, let alone how do could anything you? else. Right. Well, the stock market ruled my life. Um, <laughs> I would say Bill Gates. When Bill Gates sneezed, everything stopped. Anyway, um, so when I left Wall Street, I knew I wanted to do something. I actually initially joined um, the board of um, a cancer research organization that was started by a colleague of mine from Wall Street who had a background in biology and, and, um, and, and the sciences. And that was a great introduction to a really, really well-managed um, uh, not-for-profit and I, I enjoyed that work, but I didn't connect with it as much because I've, I'm not a scientist. I don't do cancer research. I mean, I love the mission. Right. But it wasn't necessarily something that, that spoke to me as much as music. And I went back to my music, actually, and started studying. And all of a sudden, I was practicing five hours a day. This was out of business school. Oh, that's I, I'm sorry, out of, out of uh, Wall Street. So now, as an adult, as an adult, you're finding that right. kind of drive that was a little more elusive. Exactly. And why? It's as if two to three hours a day was not given. <laughs> <laughs> but somehow, I started studying again as I went on this, this not for profit board. That was my introduction to not for profit work. I, started, I went back to studying music. Um, after a year, my teacher said, you know, what do you want to do with this? You could start to go professional, certainly not center stage Carnegie Hall, but you could start to get gigs. You could start to make money at this. And I thought, well, do I really want to do that or do I want this to sort of remain my passion? I decided I wanted it to remain my passion, but I began to look at other organizations in which I could volunteer. And the New York Youth Symphony came along through my, my late aunt who knew someone on the board. And one thing led to another. And I started, I went to a concert and someone turned to me and said, well, was it this good when you were in it? I'm like, it was 30 years ago. I have, <laughs> I'm sure it's better now. But um, it was, it was, a, it really awoken, it, it, it woke something in me. And uh, when I started talking about going on the board, um, I did a lot of due diligence, which is, I will say, came from my business background. Talk Looking, to me about that a little bit. I mean, you know, people get really passionate in not-for-profits about what the mission is, and we're 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 curing cancer, we're saving the world, we're educating kids. That's all fabulous, but at the end of the day, it is a business. It may be a not-for-profit business, but it's a business. And I looked carefully at the financial statements. I attended a board meeting before I even began, I went on the board, before I was even nominated. Did you need to ask to do that, or was there an open door to it? No, I had to ask. And I, I said to them, see, I, we were talking about my becoming a, a trustee. Um, they, had, they had not proposed me to the board. But I said to them, I said, I'd really like to see what the board dynamics are in this organization. And I had gotten that from my business background, and certainly in equity research, you're researching companies, you're interviewing people, you're constantly looking for what makes this business work and that stock work versus another one that doesn't work. So I applied that know-how to the due diligence I did for New York Youth Symphony because I certainly loved the mission. That I identified with immediately. Right. No question there. But 
Um, and I was allowed. I was allowed to do this. I don't think anyone had ever asked to do that. But I, I, I encourage people to, you know, ask any question you want. Ask for any information you want. Absolutely. I mean, it's all. It'll make you a, a more confident trustee. Absolutely. So, and it also, I have to imagine, it's useful. It's a message that you're sending to the candidates that um, there is openness. Absolutely. And, and the and nothing to hide. Right. There's nothing to hide, and it 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 leads to more questions. And I'm always interested in hearing what kinds of questions people have for me. So. Um, it was a, it was a really interesting process, and so when, when I went on the board, I I uh, certainly knew more about the organization than just sort of meeting a few people and saying, okay, let's do. Right, can can you, you afford it? You've Fine, really you're been it. diving into right. how does it operate. By the way, this is our special reunion radio edition of Women at Work on Business Radio Sirius XM One Eleven, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Melissa Eisenstadt, president of the Board of Trustees of the New York Youth Symphony. So I want to back up for a second. Um, you, in talking about that split, you know, like you've now left Wall Street, you're taking lessons again, you're practicing, you're motivated, and you're passionate. Um, and because it strikes a personal chord for me about why I don't make art, uh-huh. is you, the language that you used was you talked about, you know, did you do it professionally or do you keep it as your passion? You didn't say hobby, you said passion. Mm-hmm. So talk to me about how you, where you feel the tension is. Is that about, allowing yourself to love it and some of that changes when it becomes work? Or is it about something different? Mm, That's a good question. Uh, I guess a hobby to me would be something I'm maybe less serious or maybe less knowledgeable about or I'm I'm less engaged in. Okay. Less invested in. Uh, The the passion, I guess, also comes comes from me. And I don't I don't say this has to be for everyone. For me, it comes probably from the deep knowledge and mm-hmm. the fact that it it's not just something that casually interests me. And you're not doing it just to entertain yourself. No. And certainly not enter- entertain my cats or my husband, trust me, <laughs> <laughs> or my neighbors. But um, Although they probably are. <laughs> I, they, I've never gotten a complaint. Okay. But um, I, do, I do practice almost every day. I also – I studied – piano when I was very young for about 10 years. And I, about three years ago, two and a half years ago, I went back to piano and started jazz piano. So that, um, so I, I, between cello and piano, I practice something almost every single day. Okay. So I want to um, talk about the difference in these two things and not the instruments, but you were classically trained. Right. And de- continuing to develop as a classical right. cellist. Absolutely. What was different for you in approaching jazz piano? Oh. How did it change the way that you had to think about music? Oh my God, everything. It, jazz is a different language. Um, in in classical music, everything is on the written page, basically. I mean, yes, we can take a we can take more time here. We can be a little louder there. We can, there are things there's room for some interpretation. Right. But I I personally, if you play um, a recording of two different cellists or three different cellists and say, okay, who's playing that recording of that Bach suite? I'm not necessarily going to be able to tell you who it is. I might, but not necessarily. If you take a tune like Autumn Leaves, which everyone loves, and you have Bill Evans, Keith Jarrett, and Oscar Peterson, Oscar Peterson, yeah, any of them play, you would know instantly who it is, or you would know that they're not the same cellist. Right, that it's... It's It's a different language. The sound of their playing is their voice. Exactly. And the whole process of improvisation, people say to me, how do you learn to improvise, which I'm still trying to figure out. (laughs) But it's, it's understanding the chord structure, it's taking the melody and kind of kind of stretching that and going off piece a little bit it's the the broad outline of uh of a chart is on the printed page but what you do with that can go in any direction and it's never performed the same way twice so, so one of my um uh, similes that I use for uh-huh. it is that it's not unlike cooking with and without a recipe. Uh-huh. That you learn to cook with the recipe, mm-hmm. you follow, especially when you're baking. Uh-huh, the amounts right. matter, the stages matter, mm-hmm. um, and that as you emerge as a cook mm-hmm. you, and you become more creative, you understand how your ingredients work together. Absolutely, you understand how things like fat and heat and salt and acid affect it. Absolutely, and then you can be creative with how you bring it to life. And in the process, though, mm-hmm. um, you can really botch a dish. Uh-huh. And in learning to improvise, you can make a lot of noise. Absolutely. <laughs> How did you, aside from understanding the structure of the musical components, uh-huh. how did you deal with the emotional journey 
of learning to improvise, particularly when, at least from the cheap seats, it looks like you had had a career that was based on studying things, practicing things, being precise and getting it right. Right. In jazz, it's, it's kind of, it's, most of it is right. There's sort of very little <laughs> that's wrong, if you will. So even a, a note that sounds off can be used to create something else. And, mm-hmm. But emotionally, I mean, learning how to, to let that go is, is, is really important. My teacher always says, he says, keep on playing over and over. I have an application on my, on my phone that I use um, to loop a, a tune you know, what five it times. Called? It's called, um, um, I have to think about this, um, iReal Pro. It's, okay. a, it's a terrific app. And you can take a chart that's you know twenty four bars or whatever it is, and you can make it repeat eight times, ten to twenty times. So you however. can just keep improvising over it. Exactly, it just it repeats. It's the the your your backup band, which is a trio, which is drums and, and bass, which is and, and piano. Um, you can adjust the mix, and then you can play over it. And one of the things my teachers emphasized to me is. Don't stop halfway through the second time. He said, he said, even if you think you totally screwed up, fine. Lay out for a couple of measures. Jump back but in. But no matter what, you've got to keep, keep going. going. Which in, in classical music, I'm used to. If I miss a note, I've learned to keep going. And one of the things that I'm, I'm hopefully starting to overcome is to the, 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 uh, the willingness to just keep on going forward no matter what happens. Even if I lay out for a measure or two, let it keep going. I mean, especially if you have a backup band like a great trio in right. uh, my <laughs> iReal Pro app, it'll it'll keep going and then you can jump back in. And that's been something I've, I've finally learned to do. And I used to, after two or three times, I'd two or three cycles of a, of a tune, I'd kind of stop. And now I've, I'll cycle five times, eight times, to the chagrin of everyone around me. But <laughs> I, I do, and it, it's a lot of fun. And I try different things. So... Not being afraid to try, just it takes practice. It's almost, um, I mean, I do a lot of skiing, and it's almost like learning to, uh, on a very steep slope, to just let your skis go, to kind of let yourself go, let yourself try something. And of course, as my teacher points out, you're not going to hurt yourself physically if you try something that quote unquote doesn't work. Right. You won't break your legs. You won't break your legs or your fingers. Even though it can still be frightening. So part of what you're learning is also how to turn yourself over to it, put the fear aside and try through this iterative process. That's right. How is this and is it shaping the way that you lead? I I think that well, in general, I think there are a lot of things that have, I would say, have characterized the way I've become a leader for New York Youth Symphony, and that is um, maybe this is more experience than than jazz piano itself, but Fair is, enough. is just um, realizing that it's most of it doesn't matter. There's very there's very little that is so critical that I, I used to get my knickers in a knot <laughs> if a stock was off was off for some reason or if a if a CFO had said something that was, I thought was ridiculous, I would go crazy. And I thought, and I think to myself now, does it really matter if we take another day to discuss this? I mean, unless something is, is a real emergency, right. you learn to lay back. My, my husband would probably say she doesn't lay back so much. But anyway, <laughs> um, you, but you, I think I learned to be more flexible and not to get so uh, so agitated every time something something doesn't quite go the way I thought it would. So tell me, what what really does matter right now? What are you trying to focus on in your work with the New York Youth Symphony? So I would say uh, engagement with the community is a big part of what we're doing now. Um, we've got a great program that serves 250, uh, 250 students. We reach out to um, lots of different neighborhoods. We bring many people to Carnegie Hall and Jazz at Lincoln Center and Wild Recital Hall and all these great venues. But really getting out into the community, into um, parts of the community that are underserved, that don't have as much music or have some music but really need could so, benefit from that. So how much of that um, kind of goal and strategy is about bringing musical exposure to communities that don't have it? How much of it is recruitment and how much of it is fundraising? Uh, well, it's always fundraising. It's, <laughs> right. Fundraising never <laughs> stops. Anyone out there, nyis.org? <laughs> no, no, no. Um, but um, seriously, uh, I think that it's it's recruiting the right people and it's also finding the right partners. And I, I, I have to give a shout out to my um, to my classmate Sarah Lee because um, the, one of my best friends from uh, from uh, business school, and and Lauder, um, is a woman Sarah Lee who worked on Wall Street for a long time. Um, when she retired from Wall Street, she went to she went into the not for profit world and is now the CEO, basically the, the director of operations, which is like the COO of a charter school in the South Bronx. And 
her school is the one that we partnered with this year. Oh, what a fantastic yeah. story! It's a great. It's a, just a. I wish, I wish she were coming on next because <laughs> she, her her story is really interesting. And so it's really finding the right partners. That's what's so important. And we were. This is the school that we're partnering with. Um, Kip School in the Bronx, the middle school. Um, they are passionate about music education. So it was the it was the right group of of kids who were already excited to learn something but to be exposed to other kinds of students. So does this give the students at the New York Youth Symphony performance opportunities? Yes. And it's also exposing the students there to, per, to music that they might not otherwise ever hear. Yes, it does. And it, it, it exposes them to performance opportunities, but also collaborative opportunities with other kinds of students. And it gives them a chance to kind of be leaders because sometimes they'll have side-by-side readings with students where a 16-year-old is suddenly like the grown-up. So tell sitting. me what a reading is like when you're talking so, about musical. So it they'll they'll sit they'll, they'll do a side by side reading where all, where they'll bring a group of students from the New York Youth Symphony Orchestra say, and they'll pair them and put them on the same stand with students who play the same instrument in the school. So you'll have a a, a stand of of two violinists. One will be from the New York Youth Symphony who's playing at a fairly a reasonably high level. And someone from KIPP who may not be as advanced. They may be younger, too. That and they're sharing the sheet music. They're sharing the sheet music. And it's, it's, like, it's like any kind of sport or any, any other endeavor. When you play with someone who's better than you, you play up to that level, whether it's tennis or squash. It is or, amazing how yeah. it really does elevate your game or it, your performance. Absolutely. It kind of makes you think quicker. And I know with my music playing, when I play, with, when I, when I play string quartets, which I do all the time, with people who are really good, oh, my God, I, I'm so focused. But um, that's what that, that's what the reading does. Is it gives our students who are who are young musicians an opportunity to kind of be be the grown up, be the the demonstrator, be the teacher, and that's a really that's a nice leadership skill. Again, it's 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 using music as a way to learn life skills. This and to mentor. Which to mentor, is more, and to send the message that it's valuable and to exactly. give examples for how to do it. I have to say, I have to tell one great anecdote we had. Um, we had some wonderful anecdotes about this this collaboration this year, but there was one young woman. Who from the Kip School who listened to one of our um, string quartets play a, a movement from a Beethoven um, string quartet? She'd never heard Beethoven before, probably never heard of Beethoven before. At the end of it, she said, "Oh my gosh, I was that took that music took me to a different place, someplace I had never been. I loved that. I mean, she just. I'm not saying she's going to go suddenly become a, a violinist or play no, a lot of Beethoven, but." The- but but it really, I think, I think the arts in general, and you probably have this in in your own work. The arts, I think, speak touches a part of us that um, is so visceral. Yes, and it's something that we all share, but that sometimes we don't know how to take in, right? And that we don't either we don't get exposed to it, or when we are, we don't know how to listen. So it sounds like with the work that you're doing um, on so many levels, right. you're helping people. Learn to listen, right. to to discover things to love, and to learn how to develop themselves. Absolutely. Well, to play music, you need to you need to listen to what everyone else is doing, or you're you've missed it. So, it's sort of a metaphor for life. If people want to get involved, yes. where can they turn for more information on what you're doing? <laughs> okay. So, um, the organization is New York Youth Symphony. the uh, The website is nyys.org, and um, Go on the website and see what you think and contact the office. And if you're in New York and you want to come to a concert, we have lots of concerts throughout the, throughout the year, especially in the spring. And um, over Memorial Day weekend on Sunday, there will be the final concert in Carnegie Hall with pictures and exhibition. And that's Great exciting piece. and a good excuse to get dressed up and go support a bunch <laughs> of fantastic young musicians. Exactly. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so it's much. It's really been a treat to get to talk to you. If you have a question about anything that you heard on today's show, you can email us um, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And be sure to follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio111 or at Laura's Arrow. I'm Laura's Arrow, and thank you for listening to this special reunion radio edition of Women at Work right here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.